I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare anyone? Hi, listeners. Elise here to remind you of all the ways you can support the podcast and the work that Courtney and I do. First up, we have a Patreon. Our Patreon patrons receive exclusive bonus content. Every month, we do a roundup of Shakespeare-related content we have found online. We also share Patreon-exclusive bonus episodes of the podcast. These look like extended versions of episodes you've heard here, collaborations with other Shakespeare podcasters, and Courtney and I doing reviews of Shakespeare-adjacent media, like TV shows, movies, and books that are inspired by or loosely based on Shakespeare and Shakespeare plays. Patreon patrons also receive snail mail from the podcast, and some levels even vote on future episodes of our podcast. If you are interested in checking out our Patreon or just the Shakespeare-related names we've given the tiers of support, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link is also in our episode description. After you've done that, please rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertising. Thank you so much for all of the support you give the podcast. Now, on to the episode. Hi, Elise. Hi, Courtney. How are you today? I'm doing okay. I'm a little bit tired. Yeah, I've uh, been in a, in a tech week, so... Yeah, I think all you have to say is tech week and everyone goes. I get it. Yeah, so lots of um, late nights, long days. That's where I'm at today, but I've got like a tea next to me um, to hopefully keep my energy up. How are you doing? I'm also doing pretty well. I have my iced coffee. I have my notes. I'm also really excited to talk about today's topic. I think that this one's going to be like less specific to Titus than our normal episodes and discussions. Like it's less adjacent, at least my research is less adjacent to Titus compared to like our my other research, which is usually couched more in the play we're discussing. Mm -hmm. But I'm really excited to talk about this because like we've talked so much about women and womanhood, femininity, sexism. We've talked about all of these things across the series, all of our series so far. Right. And we're going to continue talking about that as we talk about Shakespeare. So a bit more broad. Yeah. And in our last episode on Titus, we talked briefly about how specifically in this play, we have two women who are very much in a world of men. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to take the time to kind of dig in a little bit more about womanhood and femininity, the concepts of those in early modern England, and what like influenced the creation of these women characters. Yeah. 
Yeah. I think that's a, a good way to go about this. So to frame our conversation on women, femininity, female human beings, I want to uh, start by acknowledging that in early modern England, women had a specific life cycle that was organized in a clear way that informs a lot of Shakespeare's characters, as well as other characters in early modern England, early modern plays. Um, we're familiar with the Ages of Man speech from As You Like It. The Ages of Man was a life cycle categorization that is antiquated. So like for hundreds of years before Shakespeare's time, uh, men had this very specific life cycle that they were following. So according to John Amos Comenius's Orbis Sensulium Pictus from 1659, quote, a man is first an infant, then a boy, then a youth, then a young man, then a man, after that, an elderly man, and at last, a decrepit old man. Now, around the mid-17th century, the cultural theme of Ages of Woman was becoming widespread, and Corminius wrote the Ages of Woman as well, and that starts with infant, and then it becomes gendered. Quote, so also in the other sex, there are a girl, a maid, a woman, an elderly woman, and a decrepit old woman, unquote. So that's Ages of Woman. I also want to point out before we start talking about these characters more specifically, in early modern England, female human beings had three categories that they were clumped into. Uh, the first was maid, then wife, and then widow. And I'll talk about this a little bit more. Girl was also added to the mix around this time period, but for the sake of the widespread categories of being a female human being, you are a maid, a wife, and a widow. So that's where our female human being characters in Titus are scaffolded. Mm -hmm. And we are going to take those concepts of maid, wife, and widow and take a look at one specific early modern widow who may have had a very large influence on the depiction of Tamara in William Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus. So some of the most powerful and prominent political figures of the early modern era came from one Florentine family, the Medicis, also known as the House of Medici or de Medici. And this family, in case you are not you haven't heard of them before, they are a Italian banking family and political dynasty that gains a lot of power during the first half of the 15th century under their patriarch, Cosimo de' Medici. And they eventually have the largest bank in France during the 15th century. And then they start becoming monarchs in the 16th century, the 1500s. And into this family in 1519 is born Catherine de' Medici. And she is sent to France in 1533 at the age of 14. As part of a politically arranged marriage, she marries uh, the Duke of Orléans, who becomes King Henry II in 1547. And so now she is Queen of France. Henry dies in a jousting accident. And then Catherine rules France as Queen Regent because her sons are too young yeah, underage, they're like too young because monarchs yeah. have to be a certain age, technically rule. Yeah. 
her son, Francois II, is only 15 years old when he takes over um, the throne of France. She rules as queen regent. He dies tragically a year later. And then um, her 10-year-old son, Charles IX, rules for about 14 years. During his reign, she was granted sweeping powers over France. And then she also played a key role in her third son, in the reign of her third son, Henry III, who became king towards the end of her life. And she continued to play a key role in um, how he ruled France until the last years of his reign where he took some power away from her. But it was also towards the end of her life, and he ended up only living seven months longer than she did. Ah. So Catherine dies in January of 1589, and shortly after, there are at least two, and we're going to say possibly three, written works that feature her as a character. The first up is Anne Dowrich's narrative poem, The French History, which is written later in the same year of Catherine's death. The second is... Christopher Marlowe's play, The Massacre at Paris, which is written sometime between 1589, the same year as Catherine's death, and January of 1593, when it was first performed. And then Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus, which was also written anywhere between 1589 to January of 1594, a year after Marlowe's plays first performed. And the fact that these three works were written so closely together in time suggests that there is like an intertextual relationship between them. And that they were published so soon after Catherine's death suggests that her figure in the politics of Europe, and especially nearby France, was very prominent in early modern English culture. Specifically, that Marlowe and Dowrich, because she's an actual character in them, depict her as a domineering matriarch and monarch. And one uh, piece of history that pushes forward this narrative and depiction of her is this notorious event that happened on her watch that happened during her reigns reigns as regent the saint bartholomew's day massacre which took place in august of 1572 so the saint bartholomew's day massacre takes place during the wedding festivities for catherine's daughter marguerite de valois and henry de nevers who was next in line to the throne after catherine's sons and catherine was marrying the catholic marguerite to protestant nevers hoping to like end the years of religious conflict that were going on in France. However, it, it's a bloodbath. French Catholics murdered Gaspard de Coligny, the leader of the Protestant Huguenots, and then Catholic troops and mobs slaughtered Protestants who had come to Paris to celebrate the royal wedding. Within days, according to one contemporary account, quote, the streets were covered with dead bodies, the river tinted with blood, and door and entrances to the king's palace painted the same color, unquote. And the estimated death toll of Protestants was in the thousands. There were English people, including Sir Philip Sidney and Francis Walsingham, who were part of Elizabeth's court. court. Yeah, yeah, we've talked about them a little bit. Yeah, who we've talked about before, who were in France during this time. And they brought back to England accounts of what they saw. There is still debate over like how impactful this event was in the politics and religious ramifications in early modern Europe, especially in France. And like, how was the Queen Mother involved? And was she so powerful? And like, Charles, her son, so ineffectual that like, this was her fault? We don't know. But the Protestant view at the time was definitely that she was to blame. And she's a Catholic? Yes. The French are Catholics at this time. 
Okay. Yeah. So there's a lot of propaganda written, especially by French Protestants, the Huguenots who are now fleeing France into England um, and bringing with them their views of how this happened, of what went down and why. And also like Catherine, because she is Italian, she was also facing a lot of xenophobic rhetoric that she was this like wicked Italian queen that like, yeah. Yeah. But the word wicked is. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Uh, yeah. Interesting. And basically like Protestant writers start just writing that she is evil to the core. Um, she masterminded the massacre. She taught her children Machiavellian political strategies, corrupted them. So um, she really can't escape that in the Protestant's mind that she is like this evil political mastermind. And that sort of depiction of her as this wicked, evil, conniving political mastermind is very evident in Dowrich's and Marlowe's works and seems similar to Tamara. So Protestants in Europe and in England are like writing about how evil she is. The official response from Queen Elizabeth is just that she is appalled by the news, just like outraged, but she does not do anything to jeopardize the relationship between England and France, the like peace between them. She basically turned to this like proactive diplomacy and protective measures to like ensure the safety of her own people instead of trying to retaliate as like the head of the Protestant church in, in England. One thing that Elizabeth never really did was openly criticize another female monarch. So this um, decision to basically go, oh, no, let's just like continue marriage negotiations with Catherine's son. Let's be more diplomatic with France instead of getting angry that Protestant lives were lost. And like trying to punish. And trying to punish the Catholics um, instead of turning us into war. Let's be diplomatic. It seems to be in keeping with Elizabeth's um, reticence to criticize another female monarch. And according to Joe Eldridge Carney's article, I'll Find a Day to Massacre Them All, Tamara in Titus Andronicus and Catherine de' Medici's. Throughout their basically simultaneous reigns, Elizabeth and Catherine seem to maintain like a cautious and at least publicly respectful relationship between the two of them. The English popular press is absolutely inflammatory. And as I was saying, like these French Huguenots are coming in and they are starting to spread anti-Catherine propaganda. There's one pamphlet in particular that attacks the French monarchy and Queen Catherine for the 1572 massacre that Queen Elizabeth does react to, and it catches the eyes of her censors. This is by a English Puritan author, John Stubbs. Oh, oh, we've talked about Stubbs before. Uh huh. I think that Stubbs was talked about in the episode on Midsummer about mm -hmm. political figures popping up like allegory mm -hmm, mm -hmm. go on i just i remember yeah he he, he does this a lot this is his yeah, thing. he does this a lot but this is the article that gets him in trouble um with elizabeth so he writes this article the discovery of a gaping gulf where into england is like to be swallowed and it is a critique of the marriage negotiations between elizabeth and catherine's son the duke de Alençon. and Stubbs's article, I'm going to just going to preface this, is extremely misogynist, very explicit, very elaborate. And his complaints about her potential marriage, it makes Elizabeth way more mad than actual complaints about the French. He ends up actually like losing his hand because she's so mad. I think this is the same 
the same inflammatory uh, published piece that we talked about in Midsummer. But please, yeah, yeah, let's hear it. Let's hear it. His pamphlet argues that marrying Alison will bring more massacres to England instead of preventing future ones, especially since like the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre was due to a Catholic Protestant wedding. He aims a lot of anti-French rhetoric at Catherine and also adds on top of that anti-Italian rhetoric. And he says that, quote, the mother, as setter forth of this earnest game, stood holding the book, as it were, upon the stage and told her children and every other player what he should say. The last act was very lamentable, unquote. So we get like a theatrical metaphor in there uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, where he's placing her as like this director of the atrocities. And he says that she is the author, director, and antihero of this whole narrative. His treatise is one of the earliest written uses of the word massacre, which I'll talk a little bit more about later. Sir Philip Sidney, who we mentioned before, was actually in Paris at the time of St. Bartholomew's Day, also voices his opposition to this marriage. And in his writings to Elizabeth echoed the popular perceptions of Catherine as this evil queen. He calls her the Jezebel of our age. And both of these arguments just call her like whorish and conniving. The queen ends up exiling Sidney for speaking out against this. And as I mentioned earlier, Stubbs loses a hand and spends some time in prison for writing his article. Yikes. There's also a member of Elizabeth's parliament, Job Throckmorton, who uh, stands up in parliament and delivers an anti-French tirade in February of 1587. And this comes after the death of Mary Stuart. There's all this fear of uprisals from Catholic Europe over her execution. And he takes that time to attack Catherine in a specifically gendered way. Mm. He specifically talks about how happy he is that Catherine has no more, quote, left of her loins to pester the earth with, and those that she hath yet living, truly she may have as much comfort of them as the adder hath of her brood, unquote. He continues to like this monstrous metaphor and says that instead of nursing her children with milk, her children seem to have sucked blood because the entire family's monstrous because she's a mother monster. Yeah, there's a, not to get ahead of ourselves, but I remember doing a Lavinia monologue and there's a reference mm-hmm. to Tamara and like appealing her, to her, a, appealing yeah. to her and mentioning like her mother's milk and like her upbringing of her sons. Yeah. So, yeah. So there's all this like anti Catherine de' Medici rhetoric out in the world and then she dies <laughs> and then we get some like not just political writing about her in Dowrich's narrative poem Dowrich is a early modern female poet she's also a puritan like heavily involved in the puritan movement her works were published and accessible to a wide readership and her most famous work is this narrative poem about Catherine de Medici the french history it's in three parts the first two talk about episodes in the French Civil War, but then the third part is specifically about this St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. In the first two sections, she talks about Catherine as a queen mother as chief. In the part about St. Bartholomew's Day, she depicts Catherine as, again, the architect and designer of this massacre. And also, like Stubbs, employs a theatrical metaphor to depict Catherine. 
That section of the poem reads, The Queen Mother appears now first upon the stage, where like a devilish sorceress with words demure and sage, the king she calls aside with other trusty mates into a close and secret place with whom she now debates the great desire she had to quit them from all care in planting long a bloody plot, which now she must declare. So she just is the puppet master. Yeah. Of, like the writer, the, the director, the puppet master. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's also a metaphor where Catherine talks about the Protestants as prey for her. And like, there's a hunting metaphor. You rolled your eyes. I, ugh. Yeah. The Puritans are always like, woe is me. And it's like, bro, calm down. Yeah. It's another work that ties her to Machiavelli and she tells her son Charles to just get rid of the Protestant threat for good. And all of this might be the first female character created by a woman writer of this period. So fun. Thanks. So fun. Thanks, Anne Dowrich. Yeah. As I mentioned earlier, around the same time, Catherine also appears as a character in Marlowe's play, The Massacre at Paris, which concludes with the assassination of uh, Henry III, Henri III. And unfortunately, the text is what we have remaining of it is corrupt and incomplete. But like Dowrich, he recounts the Bartholomew's Day Massacre and actually like dramatizes actual killings. Quote, nearly 20 violent sadistic deaths occur on stage during the course of the short play. The word massacre was particularly resonant in Marlowe's work as he uses it an impressive 15 times, unquote. And the Queen Mother is a supporting role to this archvillain, the Duke of Guise, who is very much like his ambitious Barabbas and Tamburlaine that interplay with like Macbeth. And, I was going to say Macbeth, yeah. the ambitious Macbeth, and then... Lady Macbeth being this supporting mm -hmm. character who eggs him on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she, like, is still very diabolical. Within Massacre, the character of Catherine even suggests that she would kill her own child in her drive for power. Much like, again, Lady Macbeth. In, yeah. In Macbeth. Yeah. So while her depiction is less overt than Dowarch's work, it's still this vengeful, calculating mother-widow figure who manipulates her children for her own political interests. And then we get to Shakespeare, who we know had some intertextual commentary between him and Marlowe. Marlo, yeah. They were writers of about the same age in the same area. And there are multiple plays where we see this interplay between the two of them. Yeah. For more on that, listen to our mini episode on Marlowe. Yes. So as we know, the death of Alarbus within the action of the play seems to set forward Tamara's arc for revenge. And Tamara is also depicted as this kind of behind the scenes ruler for Saturninus, who's maybe not as effective, much like Catherine's sons were. And then she also uses the word massacre in her plots, right? She, she says, I'll find a day to massacre them all and raise their faction and their family, the cruel father and his traitorous sons to whom I sued for my dear son's life and make them know what tis to let a queen kneel in the streets and beg for death in vain. Again, that word massacre keeps coming up specifically in the writings about the aftermath of St. Bartholomew's Day. Mm -hmm. She's another powerful controlling mother, and Lavinia's language, as you mentioned earlier, does echo that guy Job Throckmorton's tirade against 
Catherine de' Medici and her relationship with her children. And while like, you know, we can't know for sure if Shakespeare knew about that speech, at least this idea of Catherine as this like monstrous manipulative mother. mother figure was so popular that it made its way into all of this work. And the truth about Catherine's life was like, she did fashion herself as a mother, how wicked, like truly manipulative and wicked she was. We don't know. And she definitely like worked for the furthering of the Medici dynasty and used her status within Europe to continue to gain her power for her family. Mm -hmm. All of this is kind of coupled with the early modern patriarchal fear of this concept of the widow, who is a sexually experienced, independent woman. We see this in Tamara. She has her own sexual desire. She is highly sexualized. And also Catherine's court had a reputation for loose morality. Mm. But her carefully crafted public persona was that of a loyal widow to her husband, Henri II. And she made a dramatic show of her widowhood, dressing in blacks for the rest of her life. Mm. And the scholar Dorothea Keller suggests that this idea of the sexually unrestrained widow, this woman who has experienced sex, is independent. And the early modern patriarchy's anxiety about that woman may be the sort more of the source of Tamara's villainy than like her just being gothic. Mm-hmm. Speaking of which, much like Catherine, Tamara is also an outsider in the culture that she is married into, right? Right. And one final parallel between these two women, between this fictional character of Tamara and Catherine de' Medici, the real woman, um, is that in death, they are both not treated with honor, despite their status. When Lucius assumes power in Rome and Titus Andronicus, Titus and Lavinia get properly buried in the Andronicus tomb, but Tamara... Like left for the birds, right? Yes. He says, yeah. quote, as for that ravenous tiger Tamara, no funeral rite nor man in mourning weed, no mournful bell shall ring her burial, but throw her forth to beasts and birds of prey, unquote. And when Catherine de Medici died in 1589, a contemporary wrote that, quote, she was treated with as much consideration as a dead goat, unquote. The embalming of her body was mismanaged. As her corpse began to decay, it was buried in an unmarked grave. It was not moved until 21 years later when her husband's illegitimate daughter moved her remains to Saint-Denis. But then during the French Revolution, her grave was one that was destroyed and her remains were thrown to a mass grave. Mm-hmm. So this is not to suggest that Titus Andronicus is like an exact parallel allegory of the story of Catherine de' Medici, but it is to suggest that like Tamara just doesn't come out of nowhere. Right. And this concept of, or the like popular narrative of women behaving badly or like women like being ambitious, women. Yeah. wicked women is not just like a pure invention of Shakespeare. It was very much in the public consciousness and there are plenty of parallels between Tamara and a real woman who was vilified during Shakespeare's time. I can see that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's honestly a really smart move for Shakespeare to take someone that's like, you know, you could pick up a published work and see this retelling of her life and use it as inspiration Mm -hmm. because there are like lots of similarities and there's a lot of fervor about her death. And then on top of that, like you were saying, women were already in early modern theater, like 
categorized into two two archetypes. So if he was looking to make a character that was, and of course we don't know what he was actually doing behind the scenes, right? But my, you know, if if he was looking to create this foe for his Roman character, it makes sense to me. It's like any modern person taking a living or recently deceased figure and using them as a foundation for their character. Yeah, yeah, I can see a lot of those parallels. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we know Especially, he did it all the time. Oh, go ahead. We yeah, we know he did it all the time. We know that he was exceptionally good at writing in a way that allowed him to scoot around the censorship especially during elizabeth's reign where censorship was so high and the fact that this is written soon after but not like immediately after two other works about catherine de medici have been written and published and not censored seems like a safe choice to even to even like distance it even further Mm mm-hmm and also like to put it into a revenge story where you get to see the hero anti-hero of Titus take revenge against the Catherine de Medici figure if that's what's in popular culture at the time like that's cool i mean i'm sure one could criticize catherine medici for many things she is a monarch she lived in a world where there was this huge stratification of rich and poor mm-hmm. but you know it seems like the reasons why these puritan patriarchal men are attacking her are not the real issue you know right of course they don't like that she's catholic and in power but they also don't like that she's a woman who is catholic and in power yeah yeah i think it's a very compelling argument is where i'm gonna land on this catherine tamara parallel slash inspo yeah Um, I know I talked about some of the words that were used to describe Catherine and the earliest instances of the term massacre being tied very closely to her. You have a little bit more about how language shaped the concept of maid, wife, widow, and added girl into the ages of women. Yeah. So my research is far broader than that. I read the article, A Wench, A Girl, A Damsel, Defining Early Modern Girlhood by Jennifer Higginbotham. And this is a chapter from her book, The Girlhood of Shakespeare's Sisters. I only read the one chapter, but this is a very fascinating linguistics look at the word girl in early modern England and how that shaped early modern England, both culturally and in the early modern theater. So in 1548, English bishop, lexicographer, theologian, and writer Thomas Cooper edited Thomas Eliot's Latin-English Dictionary, Bibliotheca Eliote. While editing, he took part in the 16th century English trend of defining words with more gender-specific terms. Girl had initially been a word used to refer to a child of either sex in Middle English, but by the early 16th century, girl began to exclusively refer to female individuals. And this linguistic transformation coincided with the beginning of a cultural redefinition of female youth. So yes, around this time, the stages of being a female person was maid, wife, widow. And around this time, we start to see this like girl being brought in. Yeah. Which like maid, wife, widow is all about a woman's relationship to a man. This development of the idea of girl is like a concept of a female experience that is not centered around the relationship to a man. 
Yeah. And that's where my research starts to go. And it's interesting because like we think of the English language as so codified, but during Shakespeare's time, the English language was really being experimented with. We didn't have the same idea where things were so black and white in terms of definitions, even like, you know, Shakespeare making up words that he needed to communicate something in his plays. So this is like what's going on is like there's this experimentation with this word girl. Uh, So in the early modern period, writers and the culture tried out a variety of words before girl emerged as the dominant one from around the 18th century onward. And Higginbotham argues that the lexical innovations were inseparable for the renegotiations of gender and age that took place in the early modern society. And one thing that she highlights is that names matter because learning them teaches a speaker to understand the social significance and the ideologies behind them. Mm -hmm. And in this era, it wasn't very specific. So there were a lot of popular terms for female youth. In this era, some popular terms for female youth included girl, maid, wench, bird, lass, damsel, pucelle, daughter, troll, pigeon, tit, slut, miss, woman child, kitty. There were all of these words that were used as words for female youth. Pucelle, is that, how is that, like, sorry, is that like? P-U-C-E-L-L-E. So is that like Joan La Pucelle, Joan of Arc in? uh... Henry VI, part one. So yeah, sorry. I was just like, oh, Pucelle, that's Joan La Pucelle in Henry VI, part one. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So this word, this Joan La Pucelle was like Joan the maid, Joan the girl. Mm-hmm. Those words were quite interchangeable. And words were also interchangeable, like given context behind the relationship, the word girl, woman, wench, maid, Pucelle, it had different significance. So for example... Girls could be grouped with maids. Girls could also be grouped with whores, but whores and maids could not be mixed together. So like there there mm-hmm. were some rules too, like... There were different types of girl. Yeah, yeah. And there's an example of this in Robert Herrick's Upon Joan and Jane from the early 1600s. And uh, the characters that he writes about are both girls and wenches. So he writes, quote, Joan is a wench that's painted. Joan is a girl that's tainted. Yes, Joan she goes, like one of those whom purity has sainted. Jane is a girl that's pretty. Jane is a wench that's witty. Yet who would think her breath does stink, and so it doth, that's pity. Unquote. Hmm. Yeah, so like context made a difference in terms of like, you know, like the word wench didn't necessarily mean what we think of it today, like a wanton woman. Girl was interchangeable in lots of different categories of female and we see this also in titus so here this is my connection to titus titus says to lavinia quote bear thou my hand sweet wench between thine arms unquote and wench in this context functions as a term of endearment and a sign of fatherly authority in the early modern era context was necessary for understanding the relationships that these words that referred to female person specified factors like social status sexuality familial ties occupation historical position in this line titus isn't saying to his daughter you're a wanton woman it's a term of endearment but we miss that Mm -hmm. because we have such a codified bit of language yeah these words have separated for us into into like different 
classifications. Exactly. And girl could also define female individuals to each other. So in As You Like It, Celia describes her friendship with Rosalind, quote, shall we be sundered? Shall we part, sweet girl? No, unquote. And then Celia goes and joins Rosalind's banishment. And through the word girl, Celia constructs a, a sense of female kinship. And Celia has also described their female friendship in this play. She says, quote, we still have slept together, rose at an instant, learned, played, eat together, and wheresoe'er we went, like Juno swans, still we went coupled and inseparable, unquote. So here, Celia is evoking this image of female friendship that's nostalgic, of a girlhood. And of course, there are also like homoerotic undertones in this text, in this like um, relationship. But here, the word girl is providing this image of girlhood and them growing up together. Girl could even function as a marker of intimacy and affection between mistresses and servants, like in Antony and Cleopatra. Mm. Cleopatra's speech, her speeches following Antony's death are often directed at her female serving women, and girls and women, those two words, are used interchangeably. Quote, How do you women? What, what, good cheer? Why, how now, Charmian? My noble girls, ah, women, women, look, our lamp is spent, it's out. Unquote. So... Cleopatra refers to her female serving women as noble girls, and that word choice girls is specific because it avoids the term noble women because noble women designates aristocratic class status. Mm -hmm. So like by combining noble and girls together, it opens up her respect and affection for her women without the rank that's associated with noble women. Wow. Mm hmm. And in the early modern period and in the medieval era, maid was the common word used to describe female youth. So girl wasn't that word yet. Maid defined single women in opposition to wife. You mentioned this, these roles that are like relational to men. Mm -hmm. So maid was a word that described female youth and it was oppositional to wife. And it also carried this idea of virginity and service, like the female's role in society. And then with the word girl, marriage was no longer the primary marker of transition into adulthood. Like you were saying, like it separates female human beings from their relation to men. So with girl, marriage was no longer the primary marker of transition into adulthood, and it didn't come with connotations of virginity and service. And so girl designated youth without always specifying sexual status or societal function. So I remember talking about how girl could mean maid wench but like maid and wench didn't necessarily belong in mean the same, same category thing. yeah it's like there's an umbrella of girl and underneath girl are all these terms that can be still like affectionate or not affectionate and all kind of like tie in under girl during this period yeah yeah exactly and as a reminder this is new like this word is like the newer word added to the english language to describe female people Another interesting thing about the word girl is that girl enabled early modern texts to acknowledge the roles of female characters in their in-between phases of social and sexual positions. So in Romeo and Juliet, in the scene that follows the implied consummation of Juliet and Romeo's marriage, Juliet is repeatedly called a girl. And while none of the Capulets know that Juliet has gone from maid to wife, the audience hearing this word girl can 
remember that she is in this in-between stage. During this scene, both Juliet's mother and father call her girl instead of maid. Mm -hmm. And the reason why this is important to note is that prior to this scene, her parents call her maid. Oh, interesting. So that linguistic difference is like almost like maid eligible to marry like young woman. And then she becomes this other form of femininity. Mm-hmm. I mean, one, she's we as the audience also know she's not a maid anymore. So Shakespeare has used this kind of young woman word that is in this like kind of gray area for a reason. Yes. Yeah. So here, Juliet can be a girl. Her parents still see her as a girl and she can be sexually active. What the audience knows about her and Romeo's night. And prior to this consummation scene, everyone, like I said, everyone but the nurse calls Juliet maid. The nurse does call her girl mm-hmm. in that one. Yeah. yeah. The nurse says, go girl, seek happy nights to happy days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When she's like, go get some. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So during the early modern period, you know, during Shakespeare's time, the word girl had this flexibility that wasn't offered when we were just using the words like maid, wife, widow. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, Juliet Fleming argues that the 16th century in England was also a time of elaborating and correcting the English lexicon in order to make English a suitable replacement for Latin as the official language of the state. In the 17th century, a restrictive phase of standardization followed, and Higginbotham also argues that in the case of the word girl, this linguistic push was interconnected with a shift in cultural constructions of gender and youth. Yeah, prior to the early modern period, around, around, and prior to the early modern period, early modern dictionaries were not the same as the dictionaries that we think of today, you know, the Oxford. Merriam-Webster, Merriam-Webster, Oxford English Dictionary, all of that. Early modern dictionaries provided English alternatives for foreign words. That was their purpose. Dictionaries that provided explanations in English of the, like, list of English words did not yet exist. The only monolingual dictionaries in the 16th and 17th centuries were hard words that excluded everyday words. So like jargon or other things like that, but common language was not in the dictionary. So it wasn't until Samuel Johnson's A Dictionary of the English Language from 1755 that the terms girl, boy, lass, maid, all of that are used as we use them today with like very specific meaning. So let's go back and let's talk about like how girls shifted from this very flexible word to a more specific word that we know of today. At the beginning of the 16th century, writers distinguish between female children and male children with the phrases woman-child and man-child. Female and male children were relatively undifferentiated before the age of seven, and the man-child went through a breaching ceremony, and that was the initiation of boys into masculine culture. The long pants. Yeah. (laughs) You're like, ah. (laughs) So this is, yeah, this is like some sort of communion where, I mean, I don't want to, I don't mean to be blasphemous, but some sort of like. uh, It's an adulthood ceremony. Yeah. Like a lot of cultures have these. Mm -hmm. We do see it in, yeah, like you said, there are a lot of religions that have ceremonies that mark when somebody becomes a full member of the community. society, yeah. Yeah. And here this is where the. I just like calling them man-child, where the man-child wears wears pants, wears breeches for the first time. That's around the age of seven. But before that, boys and girls 
sticking to this, you know, binary view of of children and they weren't differentiated up until about seven when um, the man-child enters society with their breaching ceremony. And also during this time period, boys and girls are hierarchically on the same level. In this time, like the 16th century, boy children, girl children, and women all have the same like subordinate role to adult men. And unlike the standard linguistic binary where man is the unmarked or general term, as in man becomes something universal, you know, mankind, default, the default, and woman is the marked or the particular, meaning like woman only refers to a female person. In early modern childhood, the default sex of children was reversed. So child was the universal term. And then boy was the special term that like allowed male children to go past the stage of female childhood into male adulthood. Mm. And the umbrella term child was gendered female. And you can see that in The Winter's Tale when Old Shepherd exclaimed upon seeing Perdita, a boy or a child, I wonder. So the default is female and the specific is, is boy. boy. Interesting. So yeah, girl was the gender neutral in Middle English. Made in Middle English also meant a virgin of either gender or a female servant. Mm. So early modern people were aware of this, like maid wasn't just a female word. And we see this in Sebastian in Twelfth Night when he says to Olivia that Olivia has, quote, been betrothed both to a maid and a man, unquote. Mm -hmm. The maid man is Sebastian because he's using this word maid to refer to himself as a male virgin as well as to his sister Viola with the mistaken identity. So it's a double joke that requires this like knowledge that maid didn't differentiate between male or female in this time period. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Gotcha. And in order to specify during this era, whether it was a male maid or a female maid, the adjective knave or gay was added to it. So a male would be a knave and then a female would be gay. So it would be a knave maid or a gay maid that was the linguistic rule of this time huh yeah there's there isn't this differentiation between some words that are like today we see as totally feminine some of them are totally masculine mm -hmm. children as a group were also closely associated with servants and subordinated groups and it's like knave mm -hmm. being like yeah yeah so a lot of words for children also doubled as words for adult servants so late medieval and early modern constructions of childhood often defined it more as a power relation than as a time of life. Hmm. So it wasn't about like, you know, being up until you're like seven years old or, you know, 13 years old or 18 years old, you stop being a child. It was like this position in life. Hmm. And then there was a shift where childhood became more associated with age and less with service. And then that's when words began to become separated out and they were no longer applied to children. So an example of this is wench. Wench became a word for female children and lower class women. So it was socially pejorative about a you know female servant. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But then as some words stopped being related to children because childhood was more about a time than a position, wench became a morally pejorative word. For example, like a wanton woman. And according to Muriel R. Schultz, Quote, again and again, one finds that a perfectly innocent term designating a girl or a woman may begin with totally neutral or even positive connotations, but that gradually it acquires negative implications, at first perhaps only slightly disparaging, 
but after a period of time, becoming abusive and ending in a sexual slur, unquote. Sounds like patriarchy to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> Just period. And we know that these words were interchangeable, flexible, applied to both genders, people of multiple age groups, because of written works. Like, for example, in the translation of Jacques Goumeau's 1612 midwifery manual, Childbirth or the Happy Delivery of Women, the word girl and woman child and other terms for a female human can be seen like used interchangeably or words that we don't think would be used to describe a child are used to describe a child. So the translator in 1612 consistently uses the word wench in lieu of girl. Mm -hmm. One line reads, quote, the signs whereby to know whether a woman be with a child of a boy or a wench, unquote. Mm. And that's not supposed to be sexist. That's not saying like, you know, a wanton woman. It's a word that's used to describe a girl. And... In Antony and Cleopatra, quote, prithee, how many boys and wenches must I have, unquote. And wench here is just supposed to mean... Just girl. Girl, yeah. But by the time Nicholas Culpepper... Oh, yeah. Shout out. Shout out to uh, Ophelia Gertrude and female agency. Mm-hmm. And then also Jane Sharp. By the time the two of them wrote their midwifery manuals in English in 1651 and 1671... Woman-child and man-child had disappeared, and boy and girl uh, were the words that were used to distinguish the differences at birth. Around the same time, girl also stopped being used interchangeably with maid and came to indicate female human youth, having nothing to do with purity, marriageability, marriageability. And in Sharp's The Midwives book, girl described a younger version of maid. And so this is where girl is added to those times of life so girl maid wife widow Hmm. the last thing i want to do is i want to use an early modern play to show the shift in these words these like gendered words or not gendered words like age specific and not age specific words because there's an early modern play thomas haywood's the fair maid of the west or a girl worth gold parts one and two They were written 30 years apart. Part one was around 1600. Part two was around 1630. And these two plays, this part one and this part two, show the implications that took place due to this vocabulary shift of female youth. So the title character, Bess Bridges, plays many roles throughout the play. She is an apprentice. She's a tavern owner. She's a cross-dressing sailor. And she becomes married and a lady. And in the first part, Her fellow characters designate her with a multiplicity of terms, regardless of her clothing, class, marital status, all of that. Mm -hmm. She's called a maid, a sweet lass, a she-drawer, because that's her apprenticeship is a drawing apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. She's called a wench. Bartender. Bartender, yep. She's called a girl worth gold as well. And then in the second part, Bess is still a girl worth gold, but she is only called a maid prior to marriage and a lady afterwards. Hmm. This change in how people refer to Bess shows that there's this 30-year change in which this playwright who wrote the same play, like it was both parts were Haywood, both parts were for an English audience. Part one was written for public theaters. Part two was written for Hampton Court. They're both written for English people. And in part one, 
the language is much more flexible. There are a lot more possibilities. They aren't all tied to her and her relationship to a man. You know, she's called a she drawer, a sweet lass, a wench. Like those don't mean anything in relation to a man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then in part two, she's called a maid and a lady. Those are the words that are used to describe her. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Higginbotham also goes on into like a big deep dive about Haywood and this character, Bess Bridges. But that's for another time, a, uh, a not Shakespeare play discussion. But yeah, that's what I read about. One of the overarching themes about this is that like Bess and other female characters like her think Mole Firth in The Roaring Girl were really popular character types. They had a lot of agency. They had a lot of flexibility throughout their play. They were able to like move throughout space and the language used to talk about them wasn't necessarily about their relationship to men. But then that goes out of fashion. And Higginbotham notices that there's a correlation between rigid vocabulary surrounding female youth and the decline of these more powerful female characters. While there are still some powerful, youthful characters in the Caroline drama, the linguistic act of girling a character based on societal and linguistic parameters ends up sexualizing or belittling them rather than opening up roles for females that were open to Bess. She writes, quote, As the vocabulary of female youth became more precisely defined, characters like Bess in Fair Maid Part 2 lacked the power to define the terms that define them. Once girl could be incorporated into a taxonomical schema, it became part rather than disruptive of the maid-wife-widow narrative. In the interim, the word girl had the power to create an imaginative space in which female roles could go beyond prescriptive positions and fair maids could also be golden girls, unquote. So I don't know if you can hear, but there's a woodpecker that started to like peck outside the building that I'm in. (laughs) If you hear any knocking in the background, that's what that is. I think that it's really interesting to see like the early modern world go from like, as you were talking about the journey that Haywood's best goes through um, going from like an Elizabethan woman who's has so many opportunities available and isn't tied down to her worth as sexual object to a man. As the Puritan movement grows, as King James ascends the throne of England and women's sexuality and women's power and agency becomes more of a threat. How the words are used is also tracing that shift. Yeah, I think that the reading that I did, you can't just look at it in the context of Shakespeare's time because it goes beyond into the Victorian era and what we see the influence of girl, womanhood, roles for women, like shift and become smaller and tinier. <laughs> Because, uh, I mean, like, life was not necessarily a walk in the park for an early modern woman, but it it became more restrictive once, like, time moves forward into this 1700s, 1800s society where you've got, you know, a respectable woman has her worth tied to a man, and the language definitely aids in, like, tightening those gaps. Limiting. Yeah. Limiting what yeah. women and girls are capable of. Yeah. Yeah, when the language limits what it means, the roles also can become limited. And to just like bring this back to Titus, because Titus is kind of at the very beginning of the trajectory of this taxonomical shift between woman, girl, maid, wife, widow, you know, we can see the early constructs 
in Tamara and Lavinia as opposites of each other. And we see the start of this patriarchal anxiety over women's sexuality in Titus that then by the, you were saying like by the mid 1600s is becoming more and more like the words that are used to describe women are more specific and they just go on a trajectory of becoming more and more derogatory. The wealth of vocabulary that was used to describe women becomes more derogatory and the terms become more limiting. And Titus is just kind of a early example of how that split and shift is starting to occur, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that this has made me think about is when we perform Titus and other Shakespeare works, we've had this conversation off mic, but a lot of people assume certain characters to be weak Mm -hmm. and feel like there's a lot of limitations with a character like Lavinia, who is victimized and harmed and all that kind of stuff. But at this time period, that seal of possibilities wasn't necessarily like closed yet. Yes. And the other side of the coin being the Lady Macbeths, the Tamaras, the Volumnias of like, there's the, you know, the, the weak, virginal victim and the evil, monstrous, manipulative woman and those are the women in this time. And actually, these characters are so much more complicated. And I think this is what you're about to say is because mm-hmm. during this time, these words were not that simple. Exactly. And what we do now when we put them on the stage and our limitations as artists is more of a reflect, more reflection of our own understanding of these words, um, the words on the page than what the words meant during Shakespeare's time. So there's a lot more power we can provide. Like, I don't mean, you know, Netflix. Girl power. Yeah, girl power. Netflix is strong, independent woman. But I mean, like, women who have much more agency and are much more in control of their lives from the start to the end of the play, even when they're at the hands of someone monstrous like Aaron, Chiron, or Demetrius. The patriarchy. The patriarchy. I think that's a great place to leave off here. And with that said, thank you for listening. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash Shakespeare Anyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's Shakespeare Any and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Troilus and Cressida, Act 5, Scene 1, said by Thersides. Finch egg, 